this I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope, is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, his compassions fail not, great is thy faithfulness. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word, we need to make sure we're filled with the spirit. The unique, one of the unique facets of the church age is that God has given us not only the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but also the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the things of the doctrines that are in the scriptures. It is the Holy Spirit who stores them in our soul, and it is the Holy Spirit who recalls them to our memory for application. It is the Holy Spirit who uses that doctrine stored in our soul to produce growth. When we are not in right relation to the Holy Spirit because of sin, either known or unknown, uh, in our lives, then he does not function in that sanctifying spiritual growth uh, mode. He still functions in our life in other ways, but not towards producing spiritual growth or, or fruit. So we have to confess our sins to make sure that we are in right relationship for the filling of the Spirit so that spiritual growth can take place. So we'll start with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come to you to tonight to study your word, that we, our souls can be refreshed by your word and the truth of your word, that you use it in our lives to sanctify us, to bring us to a complete understanding of who you are and how you work in history. Now, Father, as we continue our study of dispensations and covenants, we pray that we might be impressed with your plan and how you are demonstrating your character in different ways in each dispensation manifesting different aspects of your character and emphasizing different character qualities in us that we might be effective witnesses in the angelic conflict. We pray that we might be able to understand the things and assimilate the things that we're studying this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The last two or three classes we've been focusing on the New Covenant. And last time I, we finally got to the question of what is the relationship of the church to the new covenant. By way of review, we saw that in Jeremiah chapter 31, 32 uh, and following, that the uh, new covenant was promised by God to Israel. The new covenant would replace the old covenant called the Mosaic Law. It would be different from the old covenant. The covenant is said to be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In our study of covenants, what we have seen is that God makes a covenant with man. There are two parties. God is the party, the first part, and man, or an individual who represents a segment of humanity, is party of the second part. There were three initial Gentile covenants. The second and third modified the first because of sin and judgment on the planet. The Edenic or Creation Covenant, the Adamic Covenant, and the Noahic Covenant, which is still in effect. 
Now, I want you to notice, because we'll come back to this later on, that there's a major transition that takes place when God called out Abraham. God had uh, worked through all of the human race uh, prior to the call of Abraham, but the human race failed to fulfill the, the mandate in the Noahic covenant to scatter and spread throughout all the earth. They had gathered together to make a name for themselves, which is an idiom for for asserting their own autonomy or authority over against God at the Tower of Babel. That was the symbol of their authority. And so God judged them, crushed the rebellion, scattered the languages. And it's after that, that occurs in Genesis 11, it's after that in Genesis 12 that God decides not to work with the human race as a whole, but to work through one individual. Now, we don't know anything more than what Scripture tells us, but it seems like the mass of humanity is in negative volition. And the mass of humanity doesn't know necessarily that God has said, okay, I'm just going to work through Abraham. So if you're a Gentile living in Western Europe or in uh, Africa or in India, one of those that has been spreading out from the, from the uh, uh, ark, from Ararat and, and Babylon, then you're not aware of that. So God is still holding you as a Gentile accountable to him for the terms of the Noahic Covenant. But God is doing something new. It's not something that every human being was aware of. (coughs) God did not announce from heaven that from now on I'm just going to deal with Abraham and his descendants. He just announced that to Abraham. Everybody else is puttering along during that time um, on the basis of the Noahic Covenant. And if you read through all the prophets then you discover that all of the Gentiles are condemned and judged not for violating anything in the Mosaic Covenant, but for violations of the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, the reason I make that point is because I want you to remember that when we get into our main topic this evening, which is the Messianic Dispensation. There's a transition that takes place in the patriarchal period, as it were. It is a distinct dispensation, as we have seen, but it has transitional elements to it because you don't see the full-blown age of Israel emerge on the scene until God gives them the law with the Mosaic Covenant. That's typical in transition periods. There are, there are transitions in, in history, that ex, um, in God's plan, from uh, one dispensation to another of various lengths. And the Messianic dispensation that we will study tonight is part of that. And one of those one of those transitional dispensations. Now we saw that the Abrahamic covenant is the main covenant that God makes with the Jews, and it is further elucidated in three distinct covenants: the real estate or land covenant, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, the Davidic covenant of Second uh, Samuel 7, and the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. These are clearly covenants that God, God as part of the first part, makes with Israel as party of the second part. The question is, what is the relationship, then, of the church to the new covenant? Is there one new covenant or two new covenants? Now, I covered this last time, but this is such an issue of, of confusion for some people. It's been taught different ways. I know that some of you have been taught that... Uh, there were two new covenants there, that the New Testament talks about two new covenants. In fact, the word testament, diatheke, in the Greek is the same word for covenant. That, that we, the Bible, when we talk about the Bible, we talk about the old covenant and the new covenant. Testament, covenant, same, 
word in the original language. And some of you have been taught that there are two new covenants. There's a new covenant with Israel and a new covenant with the church. And this has been a point of, of debate and a point of confusion, I think, for some over the years. And I certainly know that, that uh, in my studies over the years that I was originally brought up under the concept that there were two new covenants. It was, I had questions about that, went through seminary. There was a lot of discussion. And I think it's important to understand that, that nowhere in the New, New Testament does it clearly state that the church is a party of the second part in a covenant relationship with God. Now, that brings into question for a lot of people passages like Luke 22.20. And I'm going to run through these. I went through those in, these in detail last week, and I don't want to uh, rework everything I said last week. I just want to repeat the key points and emphasize it to make sure it's locked into your understanding. Jesus at the Last Supper said that the cup was the new covenant in my blood, and this is virtually repeated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he quotes that same passage, that the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, neither of those passages would infer or say anything about the church being a party of the second part. What they, what they, that statement is made by Jesus to his disciples who knew the Old Testament. And what do you think? I mean, there's been no other teaching on the New Covenant. Nobody has said anything else. Jesus hasn't talked about this. He sits down at the meal. He said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. What do you think was going on in their Jewish minds? They were thinking about Jeremiah 31 and all of the other Old Testament passages that mentioned a new covenant. They would not have been thinking in terms of a new covenant with the church. So Jesus is teaching them that he is establishing, and I want you to pay attention uh, to the key words here. In talking about the Bible, it's important to understand vocabulary and to understand nuances of vocabulary. And one reason that people have gotten into trouble, into heresy, is because they don't pay attention to what words mean. You know, doing theology is a lot like, like being a lawyer. You pay attention to every minor nuance and word meaning. In fact, uh, some of the greatest theologians have been, uh, and some few uh, theolo theological heretics have been lawyers. Calvin was a lawyer. Um, John Nelson Darby was a lawyer. Uh, my favorite enemy of truth in the 19th century, Charles Grandison Finney, was a lawyer. C.I. Schofield was a lawyer. I think that establishes the point that there seems to be a legal some sort of legal precedent uh, or a tendency uh, towards uh, that kind of analysis that, that uh, uh, is good for both the legal profession and theology. We are in an age when there's a lot of discussion now about the New Covenant, how it was instigated, and the key word that is being used now by what I call revisionist dispensationalists. They want to call themselves progressive dispensationalists. See, it's, all, it's a battlefield for terminology. Whatever you call yourself sets sort of the agenda for the debate, and we need to be wise. You, know, you see the same thing in the abortion debate. One, one side says that they are pro-abortion, says the other side, you're pro-abortion and we're pro, uh, and they'll say, no, we're pro-choice. See, it all depends on what you call yourself, and it'll slant and color 
the debate. One side is uh, pro-life, uh, indicating that the other side would be pro-death. So how, what you call yourself is, uh, sets the agenda. You try to color the, the debate and uh, get by the words that you use. So I call them revisionist dispensationalists because they are trying to destroy dispensationalism even though they say they're not. And uh, the word they use is inaugurate, that the new covenant was inaugurated, that the Davidic covenant was inaugurated, that somehow the kingdom was inaugurated at the first advent. But the thing is, if the, if the new covenant, and we have gone through all of those passages, remember this, there's not one thing that was said of the new covenant that characterizes the new covenant, the coming of the Holy Spirit, where nobody's going to need to teach one another. We don't see that today. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit. But we don't see the manifestations and effects that were promised in the New Covenant passages. None of those things are happening in Israel. Those passages teach that when God instigates the New Covenant, all Israel is saved. No longer will there be a need for you to teach your neighbor. Because everyone will know me from the least to the greatest, and your offspring and your offspring's offspring. Is any of that happening among Jews? Not at all. There's no way that the New Covenant is, is in effect today. <coughs> That is, the New Covenant as stipulated in Jeremiah and Isaiah, Hosea, and the other uh, prophets. So there's, but there, there's something about New Covenant in defining how it relates to the church age. Paul makes the clearest statement in 2 Corinthians 3.6 that we're servants or ministers. Uh, diakonos there is the same word for deacon or servant, minister of a New Covenant. How is that? It is that just as... In the Old Testament, just as God, party the first part, made a covenant with Abraham, party the second part, and said, through you I will bless all nations, the all nations are not party the second part, but they get the overflow blessings because God's in a contractual relationship with Abraham. So God's going to instigate, and he established the new covenant at the cross. It isn't inaugurated until the second coming, but because it has been established, God can begin to overflow blessing to the church. That is why when we come to Joel 2, we're going to, Peter can say, when he says this is what Joel talked about, we'll see that what he meant is this is like what Joel was talking about. Because nothing that Joel said in Joel 2 happened in Acts 2. Nothing that happens in Acts 2 is found in Joel 2. Yet Peter says this is that. This is what Joel said. He's really saying, and we'll see why I say that in a minute, this is like what Joel was saying. In other words, what we experience in the church age is similar to what the Jews are going to experience in a much greater way when the new covenant is uh, brought into, is inaugurated and fulfilled at the second coming. But because it's been established, overflow blessings come, and so the whole church then is based on and the, the gospel going to the Gentiles, Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, is the result of the fact that of the new covenant being established. And because of that, we as the, 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 the new covenant destroyed the old covenant, which in Ephesians 2 was a wall separating Gentiles from the blessings of God. Now that wall's destroyed because of the cross and because of the establishment of the new covenant. So Gentiles are uh, co-equal with Jews in reception of blessing from God in the present church age. 
And then there are a number of passages in Hebrews that talk about the new covenant. Hebrews 7.22, that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Hebrews 8.6, he's the mediator of a better covenant. None of that talks about the parties to the covenant. He's writing to Jews in Hebrews, and when he writes to Jews as new covenant, it's clear that they would understand him to be talking about Jeremiah 31, which indeed he quotes completely in uh, uh, Hebrews 8, 7 to 12, and verse 13 of that passage indicates his whole point. He quoted the entire section from Jeremiah just to make one point, and that is that the use of the word new indicates that the old covenant was temporary. That's his sole point. And that's typical of the writer of Hebrews. He quotes Old Testament passages in their entirety just to make one simple point. Not He doesn't exegete the whole passage. He doesn't make every point from that passage. He just quote, he'll quote it in context, in order to make one particular point. That's his style. Hebrews 10.16 and Hebrews 10.29 and finally Hebrews uh, 12.24 all indicate Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. Now, the way that the new covenant has been handled, I was rushing through this the last time, so I want to make sure you get this. There are basically two views (coughs) in the church. Uh, among theologians in the church age. They are replacement theology and dispensational theology. And replacement theology includes almost every system of theology, almost every denomination, almost every theological system. Wesleyanism, holiness theology, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, your Reformed tradition, that's the technical term for Calvinism, these Reformed churches, that would include Congregational churches, Puritan churches, Presbyterian churches, uh, the Anglican uh, churches, all were called Reformed churches because they all bought into and were heavily influenced by the theology of the Genevan Reformers under Calvin and his successors. And all of these systems all taught that uh, it, the church replaced Israel and that the new covenant, therefore, now belongs to the church instead of Israel because Israel uh, had disobeyed God, rejected the Messiah, that they were out and now the church is in as the new people of God. And they want to call the church spiritual Israel. The, and, and they want to try to take passages like Galatians 6 that we're the Israel of God. But in Galatians 6, Paul wasn't talking to church-age believers, Gentile believers is the Israel of God. And he is talking specifically about Jews in the church. These are the Israel of God. This is the remnant in the church age. Uh, According to Romans chapter 11, there would be a remnant of Jews in the church age who would trust Christ. In contrast to the millennium when all Jews would, of their own volition, trust Christ. And I talked about that last time. How in the millennium all Jews are saved from the least to the greatest, the text says. That doesn't mean God's going to make them get saved. But what God, uh, God knows that all Israel will, every Jew in the millennium will exercise positive volition. Well, there's two views in replacement theology, and the first is uh, the views of amillennialism and postmillennialism. Now, amillennialism is a Latin, I mean, a Greek prefix called the alpha privative, which is a negation. It's like un or no, 
and that means literally no thousand-year reign, no literal thousand-year reign. And in amillennialism, you have Jesus come at the cross, then you have the church age, and this is allegorized as the millennium. It's not a literal thousand-year rule and reign. It's just the spiritual reign of Christ in our hearts. Doesn't that sound so so pious and so good? And then at the end of the age, Jesus returns to the second coming, and then you have the beginning of eternity. That's amillennialism. In postmillennialism, you have the church gradually increases in terms of its witness until eventually all are saved, and due to the influence of the church, the millennium is ushered in, and it, it's, depending on who you read, it's either a literal thousand-year reign or not, but you have the ushering in of the millennium, and then Jesus comes back after the millennium. That's post. After the millennium. And that was a dominant view in American church history in the, from about the 1750s up until the Civil War. And it really got its death knell with the destruction of World War I. There was such technological advance, everybody, especially in the United States, everybody was so optimistic that they just thought everything was getting better and better and better, and that generated all kinds of problems because they were trying to, from their post-millennialism, they were trying to perfect society. And so that had a tremendous impact on politics and all of the reformed move, reform movements of the 19th century, from the anti-slavery movement to the temperance movement to the uh, women's suffrage movement to uh, labor movements were all influenced and motivated by this arrogant concept that uh, we were going to perfect society. That doesn't mean that what they wanted was necessarily wrong, but they were going about it the wrong way, and a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And if you want to try to achieve correct ends on wrong, arrogant means, then it will self-destruct. And that's what has happened in the 20th century, is that we continue to watch our culture fragment because of what happened back in the 19th century. And it was during that same time in the 19th century that you had uh, theologians begin really working out as a result of what had happened from the uh, Reformation in the, 16, or in the 1500s on. You had a continuous increase in return to a literal interpretation of Scripture. And the more there was a literal, more there was an emphasis on a literal interpretation of Scripture, the more they began to interpret prophecy literally, and that meant that a thousand-year reign in the future was taken as a literal reign of Christ, and that he would return before that. Now, that is a view that's called historic premillennialism, and it was developed in the 16th and 17th century, and that's another replacement theology, because they looked at it in a similar way, that Christ replaces Israel and is in Christ. So Israel is out and replaced by Christ. The church is in Christ. And so by being in Christ, they fulfill the new covenant and uh, benefit from it so th that uh, they enjoy an already, that's a term that they use, an already fulfillment but it's not fully here yet. It's already, but not yet. That's the terminology they use.
And then we have this new crowd that comes along as part of dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalists don't replace Israel with the church. They, excuse me, they see the church as a parenthesis in God's plan. It was unannounced in the Old Testament up to the time of Christ. It's unannounced. And then you have the inauguration of the church on Pentecost in 33 A.D. And from Pentecost of 33 A.D. until the church is raptured, there is a unique and distinct work of God called the church, the bride of Christ, that is on the earth. And once, when the church is raptured, then God returns to the game plan for Israel. And you have the last seven years, uh, or the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks, a seven-year period called the time of Jacob's trouble, which indicates its, its Jewish emphasis, and is the time of the Great Tribulation. Jesus Christ returns at the end, at the Battle of Armageddon, saves the human race from total destruction. And at that point, all Jews are saved, all Israel is saved, and all unbelieving Gentiles are taken are off the earth and, and put into um, Hades, and all believers go into the church age. You have Gentile believers, and you have Jewish believers, and they do not have resurrection bodies, and they, give, um, they will give birth to children who have sin natures because they don't have resurrection bodies. They have sin natures, and so they will give birth to children and offspring with sin natures. And among the Gentiles, there will be a revolt called the Gog and Magog Revolution at the end of the millennium, and God destroys them by fire, and that's the end of human history. So this is the period of new covenant fulfillment right here during the millennium period. It's tied in with the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the uh, uh, land covenant. They all are fulfilled together. They all intertwine and interconnect in the, uh, in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the, uh, the uh, progressive dispensationalist view... Our revisionist dispensationalist view comes along and says that the covenant was inaugurated here during Christ at the cross, and it gradually comes in, and they borrow. See, it's the same already not yet view of historic premillennialism. So you see, this is one of the dangers, one of the many ways in which the new revisionist dispensationalists are borrowing from replacement theology and and interpreting Scripture the same way the replacement guys do and bringing that into their dispensational system. That's the danger of progressive dispensationalism. And you have to understand that because what's coming out of Dallas Seminary and most seminaries today is our, our men who are committed to this new progressive dispensationalist because they don't know any better, because that's what they're... Um, Theology professors are teaching them in the classroom, and they're not being exposed to traditional dispensationalism anymore. And so what you see here is by taking concepts and categories from a replacement view and bringing them into a non-replacement theology, you're muddying the waters, and it will eventually destroy dispensational thought. So that is why it's important to understand uh, these distinctions. Uh, 
Sooner or later, you, some of you may leave here. I may leave here. One never knows what the future holds. Uh, there are people who are listening to this on tape who are going to churches where there are problems in this area. And so we need to be uh, forewarned about them. Now, among dispensationalists, there have been a couple of different views. One was that this, the old Schofield view was that the, uh, uh, this, that the two covenants were one covenant with two aspects. The problem with that is the Scripture never really teaches which aspects are for which people. Then there was the idea that there were two new covenants, but as I've stated, the problem with that is that there is no passage to support that. There is no place in the Scripture to indicate that the church is ever a party of the second part in the new covenant. The most consistent way to look at it is the one that I have been teaching, and that is that There is only one new covenant, and that new covenant was established at the cross, and it will be fulfilled, and that's indicated on the chart by the solid line, it will be fulfilled at the second coming. But the broken line indicates that there is an overflow of blessing to the church age, and so the the establishment of of the new covenant becomes a foundation for what God is doing in the unique work of the church age during this time in history. And I concluded last time with five points. They are, first of all, that the church does not fulfill the new covenant as described and prophesied in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Joel. The new covenant is made with Israel and Judah, and it's not fulfilled until Israel enters into the land. Secondly, the silence of the Old Testament prophets regarding the church does not automatically exclude the church from participating in the blessings of the New Covenant since the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. So just because there is silence regarding the church does not automatically exclude the church. Third, blessings for Gentiles in the Old Testament was based on the Abrahamic Covenant. It's not based on anything else. In the same way, blessing for Gentiles in all ages are based on aspects of the Abrahamic Covenant called the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant. Fourth point was that the church participates in some new covenant blessings, but not all. Similarity does not mean identity, and just because some of our blessings are similar doesn't mean it's automatically the new covenant. The fifth point, in terms of summary, was that the church is related to the new covenant by virtue of the blessing paragraph to the Gentiles in the Abrahamic covenant. Thus, because the new covenant was established by Christ's substitutionary atonement, the dividing wall of Ephesians 2 is broken down, and we have equal access to God's blessings. And then six, the application of this to the present age comes through evangelism because that brings us into a unique relationship with Jesus uh, who is the mediator of the new covenant. Now that brings us up to our next dispensation. We have seen in the Old Testament there's two major ages, the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel. The age of the Gentiles was broken into three dispensations. The uh, age of perfect environment, then the age of uh, human conscience, and the age of human government. Then the age of Israel, you have two periods, the age of the patriarchs and the age of Israel, This ends at the cross. Now, the church age doesn't begin until the day of Pentecost. 
but there's a transition period during the life of Christ that is, it has many of the marks of a dispensation. Remember what I said about Abraham. When God called out Abraham, nobody else knew what was going on with Abraham. God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to go from Ur of the Chaldees over to the land I'm going to give you. Nobody else knows what's going on. It's isolated. He's dealing with one individual, but that one individual represents a totally new plan in the outworking of human history. The same thing happens with Jesus Christ. When you come along and want to make uh, the messianic dispensation of the time of Christ's life on the earth another dispensation, not too many people do that today. Most people go along with C.I. Schofield's dispensational plan, and there aren't too many people who want to deviate from that anymore. But that has not always been the case. On the overhead, I've got a chart of four different dispensationalists. We have the first one, Pierre uh, Poiret, in 1646 to 1719, so roughly around 1700. He broke down the dispensations. He went, now, now, these first two, uh, Poiret and Watts, are not dispensationalists in the classic sense. I don't want to confuse you with that. They, they, but they did divide, they did recognize that God was dealing with man in different ways and different administrations, and they did break uh, scriptures down in dispensations. Just because you're not a dispensationalist doesn't mean you don't believe in dispensations. Charles Hodge, who was a Reformed theologian, covenant theologian, held to uh, at least four different dispensations. So there were many others who've held to different breakdowns. And this is just to show you how... Others have broken down the dispensation historically. He had a period from the creation to the deluge, from creation to the flood, then from the flood to Moses. And then he broke the age of Israel down into two sections, from Moses to the prophets and the prophets to Christ. And then he had a section called manhood and old age, which included the period of Christ, uh, incarnation, and the church age, and then a period called the renovation of all things, which is roughly the millennium. Now, Isaac Watts, who is the well-known hymn writer, also believed in various dispensations, and he broke it down differently. He lived from 1674 to 1748, and he broke down the early period he called the Age of Innocency and the Adamical Age. That was followed by the Noahical Age and the Abrahamic Age. Now, I haven't misspelled those words. That's how he spelled them. Um, then he had the Mosaical Age from Moses to the cross. And then he just had the last age was called the Christian Age. He did not distinguish with a future millennium. And then the next two characters I put up there are dispens classic dispensationalists. The first you've probably never heard of. He was the pastor of a Presbyterian church in St. Louis, and he was Schofield's pastor. His name's James Hall Brooks. Notice how Brooks broke down the dispensations. He, um, he had the first period of Eden, and then the antediluvian dispensation from Adam to the uh, uh, flood, and then he had a patriarchal dispensation which covered everything up to Moses, from the flood to Moses. And then he had a mosaic dispensation from Sinai to the cross, but then he broke down the period of the, from, he had a messianic dispensation and an age of the Holy Ghost, which we would call the church age. So he has a separate and distinct dispensation 
for the life of Christ. There were others who do this. I picked these four because they were representative of various ways in which uh, dispensations were classified. So James Hall Brooks held to the life of Christ as a distinct dispensation, followed by the age of the Holy Ghost and the Millennial Kingdom. Schofield took it and broke it down in the classic way that most people have heard it, and this was what was popularized in the Schofield Study Bible which is what many of you probably cut your eye teeth on when you first started getting involved with churches because in doctrinal churches up until the mid-70s, uh, we were still using King James Bibles, and the best was the Scofield Reference Bible. Since then, you have the Ryrie Study Bible is good and a few others. New American Standard are, is a better translation or the New King James Version. And I think the Scofield Reference Bible is now available in those versions. But this was quite, he, he made, he popularized dispensationalism, but his was not and has not been the only scheme for breaking it down. So the number of dispensations that someone has is not what makes you a dispensationalist. What makes you a dispensationalist is that you understand that there is a distinction in God's plan between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And that's based on a consistent use of a literal interpretation of Scripture. But anyway, I wanted to show you that because some people raise a question every now and then. I'll talk about uh, the age of the Messiah as a distinct dispensation. And I like that terminology because it, it is Old Testament. He was come, when Jesus came up until he was rejected by the Pharisees, he came to offer the kingdom. It was a legitimate offer. He was offering, he was coming as the Messiah to Israel. So that is a major thrust in Jesus' ministry. It is not until the rejection occurs, and at Matthew 12, when Jesus begins to talk in parables to the disciples, and he begins to start teaching some church-age truth uh, in light of what is coming. So we have a distinction there, and I think there is grounds for making the church, I mean the age of Messiah, a distinct dispensation. Now when we've gone through this, I have emphasized the fact that each dispensation, there is a name for the dispensation based on a key person or key issue. There's a responsibility that's highlighted, a distinct responsibility, a test, failure for the test, a judgment. There's the grace provision, operation of grace in that age, that dispensation a volitional issue, and it is related in a particular way to the angelic conflict. Now, there are distinct answers to each of those categories in the age of the life of Christ, whether you call it the age of the hypostatic union or the messianic age, we're talking about the same thing. The central person is Jesus Christ. God is working through Jesus Christ, just as God worked alone with Abraham and nobody else in the world knew what was going on. God is doing something unique in Jesus Christ. One of the things I said was that there is a, a the shift from one dispensation to another is always marked by new revelation. What is more, what can be more profound in terms of new revelation than the logos of God? That, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God in John 1, 1, and John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory full of grace and truth, and no one has seen the Father except the, the only begotten one who has explained Him. And in the Greek, that 
exegeted him. It is Jesus Christ who is the ultimate revelation of God. So what can be more profound than the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in starting and and indicating a new dispensation? There is some new revelation there that is more profound than any of the new revelation given to Noah, to Abraham, to, to the prophets, or anyone else. It is God incarnate now, Emmanuel, God with us. So the central person is Jesus Christ who brings completely new revelation. The name of the dispensation derives from his offer to Israel as the Messiah. He he offered himself as Messiah and in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. The major responsibility for Israel (coughs) during this time is to identify him on the basis of Old Testament prophecies as the Messiah and to accept him as the Messiah. Some did, most did not. They rejected him. That was the test to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And the judgment comes on Israel eventually in 70 A.D. with the fifth cycle of discipline. The grace aspect of this dispensation is the provision of redemption. It is, the, in fact, the whole incarnation is an act of grace. Because God himself has become incarnate. He is living among men, demonstrating and fulfilling all the requirements of the Old Testament law, while at the same time doing it in a way that sets the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. He lived his life filled with the Spirit. And on the power of God, the Holy Spirit fulfilled all the requirements of the law. So Jesus is without sin. The volition issue related to the test and responsibility is to accept or to reject Jesus as the Messiah, specifically targeted at Israel. And then in terms of the angelic conflict, there is an intensification of opposition. There is more demonic assault. In fact, almost all of the uh, passages that deal with demons in the New Testament are related to the Gospels and to the early years of the church as, Jesus, as uh, Satan is expressing his opposition to what is going on because he sees this as the focal point of all of human history. So as there is an intensification of opposition and an assault on the Messiah. There is the uh, Herod is moved to destroy all of the infants under the age of two in an attempt to, to uh, destroy Christ. There are the various assaults on Christ. You have increased demonic activity, ultimately culminating in what Satan thought was his victory in getting Jesus crucified and rejected by the Jews, but that turned out to be uh, what's called a Pyrrhic victory. It cost him everything. He won the battle but lost the war, and that was that is the end of uh, uh, Satan's uh, whole attempt is destroyed by the fact that Christ was able to go to the cross and pay the penalty for man's sins. So for that reason, I see that the, the, the life of Christ is a distinct dispensation. He is fulfilling the law. He's the end of the law. He fulfills all the requirements of the law. And yet at the same time, and this is what's crucial, in the way he does that, he establishes the precedent for the church age. So that when we as believers come to the, come to the spiritual life, we don't look back to the Mosaic law 
as the precedence for the spiritual life. That's what Lutherans do, Roman Catholics do, that's what Presbyterians do, that's what all the replacement theology groups do. Whatever group they are, they all look to the Mosaic Law in some way. Partially they'll say, well, the the ceremonial law was fulfilled by Christ in the crucifixion, and that's no longer applicable, but everything else is. And all of these groups go back to the Mosaic Law as the precedence for the spiritual life in the church age. But in dispensationalism, because we see that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, and because when Jesus Christ came, the scriptures clearly teach that he is the end of the law, that the spiritual life of the believer in the church age is far and above and beyond the, li- the spiritual life of a believer in any other dispensation. Because it is based on this unique role of God, the Holy Spirit, in the life of the believer. Not only are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit and baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection by God, the Holy Spirit, but we are also, we can also have the filling of God, the Holy Spirit, who teaches us and brings to our, teaches us doctrine, helps us to understand it, stores it in our soul, and brings it back to our memory for application. So all of this, and spiritual growth is related to the function of the Holy Spirit who produces fruit in our lives, Galatians 5, uh, 17 to 23, and John 15, abiding in Christ are all aspects of this, and so that the spiritual life of the church age is established by Christ's life, not by the Old Testament dispensations. That's why we don't go to the Old Testament to find a precedent for the mechanics of the spiritual life. So that lays the groundwork for the new dispensation that comes after the ascension, and that is the dispensation of the church age, also called the dispensation of grace. This is covered from Acts 2.1 to Revelation 19.21. That's the scripture for the church age or the dispensation of grace. Acts 2.1 to Revelation 19, uh, or excuse me, from Acts uh, 2.1 to to the end of Revelation chapter. Key characteristics, it's the central person is Paul because Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles and it is through Paul more than the others, but of course they're certainly involved. Peter and John, James, writer of Hebrews, are clearly involved. The central person is Paul. He is the one to whom the mystery doctrine of the church age is given to be revealed. The name comes from John 1.17 that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that grace is now displayed in a way distinct from earlier dispensations. That's not to say that grace wasn't operative in other dispensations. See, that's, that's what uh, opponents to dispensationalists always come up with. They say, well, dispensationalists teach two different views of salvation. It's by works in the Old Testament, by grace in the New Testament. And you'll hear some person who is reliant. Unfortunately, Schofield made some statements in the Schofield Reference Bible that support that. And there were some that taught that view, and they were wrong. And uh, people, dispensationalists, have been saying that they were wrong for 60 years, but our opponents don't want to listen, and they still want to bring up these old uh, 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 charges against dispensationalists. And there's not a dispensationalist since 
the 20s or 30s that, that held to that. Unfortunately, Schofield uh, made some uh, erroneous statements in his notes, and so people that has caused some great confusion. But there has always been grace. It is just that there is a unique uh, fullness of grace in the church age. Just as law, the idea of law did not begin with Moses. There was law before the flood. There was law after the flood. Uh, those laws were not uh, the focal point. They were, they were minimal. Uh, Moses' law was a unique codification for the, nature, the nation of Israel, and it included spiritual aspects to it in the ceremonial law, so we call that the age of the law. But it doesn't mean that there's no law at any other time. It doesn't mean that in the church age, we're in an age of antinomianism where there aren't any uh, spiritual mandates. So grace, is, uh, grace does not mean you get away with your sin. It just means that God deals with it in a unique way because Christ has come and you're still going to go through divine discipline for sin. The name, therefore, of grace comes from John 1.17. Calling it the church age indicates the major people group in this, this uh, age. The responsibility is really twofold. First, to believe in Christ. That's the most important decision we can make in life. And then the second most important decision we make in life is how we grow as believers. So those are the two responsibilities in the church age, to trust Christ as Savior first, and second, to advance um, by means of grace and knowledge and of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. The test, therefore, is the cross and spiritual advance in the believer's life, and the judgment that comes at the end of the age is the great tribulation upon those who have rejected Christ. And so the church is uh, resurrected out from. Uh, there is an exit resurrection of the church that takes place uh, and is imminent. It could happen at any time. And that is followed eventually by the Great Tribulation. There's a period of transition. We don't know how long. And then the Great Tribulation begins when the prince who is to come signs a peace treaty with the Antichrist. Grace. There are multitudes of Gentiles are saved while there are, there's only a remnant of the Jews that are saved. The volitional issue is at the cross, accept or reject Christ as Messiah and to grow spiritually and advance to spiritual maturity. And then in terms of the angelic conflict, Satan is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he does that in three ways. He blinds unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. Second, he tries to destroy the witness, the testimony of believers. And third, he is fostering anti-Semitism and an assault on Israel because if there is no Jew left by the time of the uh, end of the tribulation, then God cannot fulfill his promises to Israel in the New Covenant, the Land Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant. So uh, all, that's why all anti-Semitism is wrong. And we live in an age when there is, uh, even though we've got the witness of the Holocaust and all of those horrors from World War II, there is a rise of anti-Semitism, and the most virulent form is among the Arabs. So that lays down the outline for the church age. And the church age begins in, <coughs> in Acts chapter 2. And before I get into that, because that's a lengthy uh, discussion there, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up tonight and uh, come back and talk about Acts 2 and its relationship to Joel 2 and different aspects of rabbinic interpretation and how that applies when we come back next week with our heads bowed 
and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for a time to study your word tonight, to understand how you're working in history, and to see that you have provided a unique spiritual life for this age based upon the establishment of the new covenant and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that we have learned these things and pray that we'd be challenged by them. In Christ's name, amen.